Yesterday, Melissa and I had brunch at a new Greek restaurant that opened a couple of blocks from our apartment. We're always on the lookout for new fare. Sitting near to us was a mother and daughter also trying it out for the first time. I guess the daughter was in her mid to late 20s. And snippets of conversation that drifted our way suggested they had warm, positive rapport. Well, after a well-prepared meal, and by the way, it was quite good, and if you'd like to know what this restaurant was, I'll tell you afterwards. After the 9 o'clock service, a lot of people asked me what this restaurant... You know, there's so many foodies in New York, right? <laughs> it was a good meal. And Melissa, though, wanted to try out the baklava, so... We ordered one to split, and while savoring it, I overheard the daughter ask her mother something about resurrection. My ears perked up. (laughs) I wasn't expecting that. She was asking how it was that if Jesus was resurrected, why we didn't still see him. She had a lot of agitation around this. She had a lot of questions, she said. Do you believe it all, Mom? Mom mumbled a non-response and shrugged her shoulders. Daughter then said she was going to ask the priest on Sunday. She really wanted some answers. She had a lot of questions. Well, it turned out that Melissa had also tuned into this little exchange and looking up from her dessert with a wry smile on her face, said, Honey, you might want to go help them out. (laughs) Munching on what turned out to be, by the way, fantastic baklava, I said quickly, that's why they have a priest. You know, if you have questions or doubts about the resurrection, you're in very good company. At least it would seem so from the biblical accounts. We only read one of them today from John, but really, all of them speak of disbelieving, non-understanding, and questioning disciples. In fact, that's what the stories are about. John's story unfolds in a very human scale. Note, trumpet exclamation or full-out organ like we have here, no majestic choruses or full-on orchestras, no prearranged delivery of flowers and so on. Just a series of small, confused and confusing vignettes about an empty tomb, neatly folded burial linens, and a case of mistaken identity concerning a supposed gardener. Next week, the story continues with that portion famously entitled Doubting Thomas, so-called because Thomas stipulates that unless he can see and touch Jesus for himself, he'll have none of the hearsay evidence concerning the hypothetical resurrection. Matthew reports that the other disciples doubted. The original ending in Mark goes like this. This is the way Mark actually ended. So the women went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 
In Luke's version, after the women make their report, we're told for the disciples, the women's words, quote, seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So, like I said, if you have questions and doubts, you're in very good company. But then you are here, after all. I mean, you've come out on Easter Sunday to to get a good blast of something, I'm thinking, something good and positive, something hopeful, reassuring. Still, I imagine that among you here, some are not entirely sure what we're doing here or just what it is exactly we're really celebrating. A short while ago, a woman came to speak with me about the trouble she was having with Jesus. That's the way she put it. The whole Jesus thing troubled her. She didn't know if she should stick around. On the one hand, she was profoundly attracted to the stuff that was going on here at Christ Church. On the other hand, she didn't really know what she could realistically say she believed. She thought it was a matter of personal integrity that she come clean with me. I said that I very much appreciated her honesty, but did she realize what good company she kept here, especially considering the historic records we hold so dear, for instance? Well, that led us into an interesting conversation about the nature of faith, what it was and what it wasn't. I told her that faith was not the same thing as belief in a set of propositions. We don't have faith in propositions. Instead, faith is more like a leaping into a relationship. It was more like falling in love with someone than figuring out a discrete solution to a complicated equation. Had she ever loved someone, I asked, deeply, truly, deeply and truly? She said she had, which led us into a brief history of how that had come about. The first meeting, the initial question she had about the other, her uncertainty about him at first, and then a developing recognition of growing affection and respect, even love. In a similar way, I said, Jesus' friends had come to love him. It was personal and relational, not propositional. They weren't asked to take a test about who he was, and score above a certain percentage to be included among his company. Instead, they were asked to follow along, listen in, and see if what they experienced rang true. He loved them. They loved him. Indeed, a good portion of his message pertained to the matter of loving. Now, friends, that's why the events of that final week were so poignant. How Judas' betrayal wasn't just a two-dimensional plot device to bring about the conclusion God had in mind all along. It was instead a very deeply personal betrayal. And as the text says, he used a kiss to identify who Jesus was. And the disciples' cowardice at the end, especially Peter's repeated denial he had ever known the man, these were personal devastations. 
And this following on the night, Jesus took their feet into his hands and washed them. Put yourself into that place, if you would, a profoundly intimate, touching and poignant event. Then he broke bread with them and drank wine with them and said, this is my body, this is my blood. Deeply felt, profoundly human, astonishingly intimate. You know, it's no wonder that what came next would be cloaked with doubt and confusion and questions. How could it have been otherwise? And I think to myself, how could it be otherwise for us? Why should we be clear and confident about what actually happened with resurrection? That it was ultimately claimed and embraced by Jesus' friends is evidenced in the existence of this very building and your presence here, notwithstanding the particular reasons you've come. Those initial cowardly friends rediscovered their relationship with Jesus and one another as a result of resurrection. And it wasn't just like old times. It wasn't the Jesus they knew before, before the betrayals and cowardice. They didn't have a renewed relationship with a resuscitated corpse. No, this was a Jesus transformed, whose power and love had been released from the imprisoning limitations of flesh and bone, time and place. Still, it was relationship that bound them together. And it was faith in this relationship that got them moving and ultimately sent their spirits soaring. Resurrection wasn't a magic trick or a resuscitation of the past, but a strong movement into the future. And friends, by the way, that is precisely what forgiveness accomplishes. Most of us have a mistaken notion that forgiveness concerns the healing of the past. But that's not it at all. You can't heal the past. The past is gone and done. It cannot be changed. Forgiveness, you see, gives us back the future. Forgiveness is about the future. That's what Peter and the others found in resurrection. It gave them back their future. And the past no longer held them captive. That's a big deal. I bet that's a big deal for every single one of you sitting in these pews. About not being held captive to the past. But here's the thing. Easter creeps up on us in the darkness, in the confusion, in the despair, in the sense of failure and profound loss. Easter even comes to those who, like Mary, find themselves crying their eyes out some days, maybe many days lost in a Good Friday dead end. In a John Maysfield poem, a young man is about to be executed for crimes against the state. And in the crowd that has gathered to witness this event stands his widowed mother. 
who was about to be left all alone in the world. And when the trap door opened and the rope had finished its work, this crushed woman crumpled to the ground and began to sob uncontrollably. And those nearby heard her say something about broken things, too broke to mend. Part of this anguish had to do with the past and her sense of failure as a parent. But an even greater part of that anguish had to do with the future and the utter sense of hopelessness that was now closing in on her. It is a terrible thing to feel that your existence is not just broken, but too broke to mend. Experience tells me that moments come to all of us over the course of our years, in our physical, emotional, and spiritual health, in our marriages, with our children, our career, our politics, our justice, the state of the world. And the thought occurs to us. It's it's just too broke to mend. But now, what sort of Redeemer can absorb and then transform life too broke to mend? 2,000 years ago, another man's execution was witnessed by his mother, an enemy of the state, they said. By the time they released him from the wooden crossbeam, his body was too broke to mend. That fact alone accounts for the bewilderment and confusion of those early resurrection witnesses. How could they comprehend Resurrection, when the world they knew seemed defined by days like, just like Good Friday. I mean, after all, isn't that how the world is organized? One Good Friday after the other. St. Paul put words to the astonishing turn of events when he wrote some years later, after he had fallen in love with the God of love, that this God is the one who can make the things that are out of the things that are not, and one who can make dead things come to life again. And I'm thinking that Paul knew something about this firsthand. For him it was personal, very personal, relational. He had been dead and he was now alive. I think that's what he meant. Frederick Buechner put it this way, Resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. And I don't know how you come to say such things except through a heart of faith. You can't force anyone to say such a thing, I know. It it can only be invited and then experienced like... Please come to dinner and share our hospitality, which, by the way, is exactly what we're going to be doing in a few minutes. We're going to invite you to an Easter Sunday meal right in here. We're going to say that everyone is welcome. Everyone. No one excluded from the invitation. Let me say that again. Everyone is welcome. When was the last time you heard that? Have you heard that out there on the street recently? Or in our politics? Or in our national culture? Everyone is welcome here. Everyone, everyone, everyone. We can say that because of resurrection. 
especially welcome are those who believe that this is a Good Friday sort of world too broke to mend. The invitation is especially for you. And you know we're not going to make you fill out a questionnaire or a multiple choice test. All that's required is your coming and receiving the gift. That's all. That's it. Of course, I think it would be best if we come to the table with integrity, like the women, like the woman who visited me in my office, or the daughter I overheard eating baklava. You know, even if we wanted to, even if we really wanted to, we could not leave our doubt and confusion, our pain and despair in the pew when we come forward today. But I say, bring it all with you. Just like the women who first visited the tomb. Bring it on. Bring all of it. But then I will also quickly add, be prepared to be astonished. Because it turns out the gardener, the gardener of all people, is the very voice and presence of God who says, Quietly, tenderly, but certainly that all shall be well. All shall be well. All manner of thing shall be well. For there is a force of love moving through the universe that holds us fast and will never let us go.